Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Well, a little bit less sexy tonight as Boston ends up blowing out the Cleveland Cavaliers. It really was never close. Cleveland was put down 32-19 to at the end of the first, particularly when LeBron rusted. Boston was able to surge out to a lead. And I thought Cleveland's defense actually got a lot better. In this game, they held the Celtics to 21, 23, and 20 points, but then they couldn't score themselves at all either. And I think that other than Boston's home court advantage, which I want to talk about a little bit more, the strategy for Boston of going with Aaron Baines in the starting lineup, matching the Cavaliers' big lineup, seemed to work pretty well. I thought Baines did a very good job. He ended up playing 29 minutes, which is substantially more than he'd been playing coming off the bench, which makes sense. And I also thought it benefited Marcus Morris early on that he was had a little bit more energy to attack not only Cleveland's backups, because Cleveland didn't really do much subbing in the first quarter, but really Cleveland's tired starters. I thought that Morris's energy was beneficial to Boston in that later part of the first quarter. But going back to Baines, his... Rim protection did a nice job there, also battled a little bit on the offensive glass, and Boston actually was a meaningfully better offensive rebounding team than the Celtics were in this game. They had a 24.5% offensive rebound percentage, and Cleveland's was 9%. Yeah, only three offensive rebounds for Cleveland, I don't even recall them getting, maybe they had like one team offensive rebound that I remember, and there are over 30% offensive rebounds, which is like a lead leaving, leaking, jeez league leading type of level in those two games in Cleveland in part because they're going with bigger lineups they're getting switches and they're able to attack the glass so Boston took that away they also benefited from nine out of 34 three-point shooting and also some bad Cleveland defense in the first which let them get up 13 three-point attempts they made six of their 13 three-pointers Boston did in that 32 point first quarter and really after that it never really got much closer than 10 for nearly the entire game this was just a kind of a a very similar one to the way that Cleveland beat Boston in game four where they just surged out after the first quarter it was pretty even after that they got their defense right but just were never able to really mount a surge offensively and uh so now we go back three two to Cleveland and I want to talk a little bit about this Boston home court advantage just it's like kind of offensive to me in some ways that it seems like they're just so reliant on their home court that there is something about their home court that is spurring them on. And the fact that this team, which frankly would not have earned home court advantage, at least these guys together uh, without Kyrie Irving are now getting the benefits of it. And I just feel like you should 
have to be able to win on the road at some point in the NBA playoffs and to have this massive disparity now 10 and 0 at home and 1 and 6 on the road I just I would like to see a team that's like a little bit more well-rounded to maybe win like you know one game on the road in the playoffs. I guess they have won one game. Well, they the they probably the would have won more on the road if they'd played the if they played the Raptors. But who knows? Maybe they wouldn't have. Maybe that would have been like a, a, a series where Boston is just battling all the way through. Maybe they steal one yeah. road game. And, and their fans deserve a ton of credit. I mean, oh yeah. By all accounts, it has been unbelievable in there uh, in this, this postseason. In particular, JJ Redick was on Simmons' podcast today and sa- saying that his mom told him it was louder in there than she'd ever heard in any arena. Which I I, I appreciate JJ being that honest because you know obviously he has like his own fans that he has to liaise with and that's a challenge to their own fans you'd think that philly would be a pretty good market there as well for that but but back to the it's just it's kind of annoying to me that it's just like oh well they're on the road so they're gonna lose oh they're at home they're gonna win it's like they're just not it doesn't make it very fun as an analyst maybe that's more what my uh well what i what my concern with it is what i will note is that you brought up Game 4. I thought Boston's defense was a lot better after the first quarter of Game 4. It was something we talked about as a positive, even though Cleveland had outclassed them in those two games that they could build on and, and work from. And I thought their defense did a really good job. And a lot of that was also Cleveland's support players, other than Kevin Love, and Kevin Love did almost all of his damage in the first quarter. I think we've heard that story before. But <laughs> Love had 10 points in the first quarter, 4 points in the rest of the game, George Hill and J.R. Smith, I believe both didn't score in the entire first half, definitely not in the first quarter. And they both, you know, especially especially J.R. Smith was really out of sorts in the in the first half, but did look to be engaged in this in the second half a little bit more before getting what looked like needed knee contact with Jalen Brown. We'll see what happens there. You know, that that might end up being a lingering factor or something close to that in the Warriors Rocket series as well. But I mean, not only did Lou, or more accurately, his team get outplayed pretty significantly in the first quarter, he also didn't make any subs. So those guys were all tired, and, and it, it kind of helped. It, it He didn't really try much to change it until halftime. Yeah, certainly people in the Tour NBA show comments were going nuts about Corver not playing. And, you know, he's been a little bit gun-shy, and Corver took him out of the starting lap after game one because of the way he's been attacked defensively. And... You know, I'm not sure that like bringing in Corver when they put up 32 points in the first quarter was going to be a panacea necessarily. Cleveland actually protected the rim reasonably well in this game, and they had, were giving up shots, but Boston was only five of 13 at the rim in the first half, so that wasn't necessarily what killed him. You know, there are definitely things I thought Lou could have done differently. Too much Jordan Clarkson because he hit two threes early, and you know that meant that he got to play a lot more down the end. Um, I thought also that now with Boston having gone back to playing big, that Lou might do well to actually go back to playing small with Love at center, and you're going to have a, a positive matchup for Love then against Baines, or Baines is going to have to guard LeBron James probably if you start that way, or or he'll have to guard a shooter. I agree with you. I think that Cleveland has benefited from it, and it was a little bit surprising when it didn't work early on that Lou didn't really shift. It might have also been Love's foul trouble because he picked up that second foul late in the first quarter, and then he didn't play at the beginning of the second. Yeah, Love didn't play a minute at center, though, I don't think. No, I don't think he did. It it wasn't really a a pivot or anything else like that. I also did feel that Larry Nance Jr. brought some good energy defensively. Energy is a positive. He ended up with four blocks, which is a lot, but I just thought, you know, getting into passing lanes and just being there. But I still don't see that as like a solution to what Cleveland's problems are. And offensively, he was 
very ineffective yeah and that's of course this is the problem when you have don't really have two-way players you can kind of go big and and play a little better defense and another problem too is that lebron did not have the type of dominating game that he had in cleveland only five or six six turnovers i mean i think this is game one this is the case as well but 26 points 11 of 22 and he also had the six turnovers so he was 29 possessions to get 26 points basically that's not particularly efficient and this cavaliers team overall only 83 points on 94 possessions so it was an 88.3 offensive rating for this team that is really really bad we mentioned they couldn't get on the offensive glass at all and they turned it over 16 percent of their possessions which is a lot for this team that that was really just not being able to score was so massive and they weren't hitting their threes either i thought they had some open ones late it wasn't necessarily from their best shooters a lot of the time and they also were forced into some pretty difficult threes i mean there was one lebron settled for with like six in the shot clock was just a guy right in his face didn't even try to create separation or or anything like that I might have missed this, but if if he didn't, I was just looking up the stats on LeBron shooting four or fewer free throws this year because oh yeah he didn't get to the line very often. So it happened twenty eight times in the regular season and playoffs together. The Cavs were sixteen and twelve in those games. Okay, so that's actually not as bad. But I, I'm looking their... through it. A lot of those wins are against bad teams, like the Bulls. Yeah, so the yeah. Bulls twice, the Hawks the pistons where he just like didn't try to get to the foul line and so you know just wasn't worth his time right yeah like like chill mode games where chill mode lebron was was more than enough there are some there are some notable wins there but not very many and a lot of the wins against good teams were in cleveland i would say the win at philly in november is probably the best win against a playoff team that they had when lebron had fewer than fewer than or seven or, or sorry four fewer free throws for boston transition in the first quarter was huge Jalen Brown, although he was only 4 of 15 from the field, did get to the foul line for eight attempts. Uh, had a couple of nice passes, though he only finished it with two assists. And then Jason Tatum, eight free throw attempts of his own. He led Boston with 24 points, playing 41 minutes, by the way, as well. Brad Stevens really rode with him. He rejiggered his rotation a little bit to take Jalen Brown out of the game as the first wing out rather than Tatum. And I thought that the lineup that Boston went to with Marcus Smart at point guard, Horford at center, and then Tatum, Brown, and Marcus Morris. I mean, they Cleveland looked like they had no chance to score against that lineup. And we've seen Marcus Smart actually got beat on switches some last year by Love and by James. That was a different Celtics team, of course, that had Kyrie Irving on it. So there are a lot more threats out there. But you remember, I, I want to say it was one of the first two games in Boston where Smart basically just like almost fouled out of the game on like, six post-ups in a row from Kevin Love in like the second quarter and so we haven't seen that at all this year I think Love is a little more limited in the post due to some of those hand issues that I think he's still dealing with and Jalen Brown also you know LeBron was killing him in the post last year and we haven't seen that as much either now Boston has a lot better defensive personnel and Cleveland has a lot worse offensive personnel so that's part of that but Brown has done a good job of bodying up defensively and this is just a great defensive team for the Boston Celtics, uh, especially, of course, when they are playing at home. Paralleling the Western Conference Finals, something Boston has done is narrow their rotation to just the guys that they trust, and they have enough with, with seven guys and giving those players significant minutes, especially, you know, Baines playing 29, that's significant too. Cleveland, A, does not have that luxury, and B, got some really rough minutes from their bench. Jordan Clarkson, 
two of three at the beginning of the game with the two makes being catch and shoot threes. I think one was from LeBron, one was from JR. I can't remember who the other one was from, but it was from there. And then one for seven the rest of the game on substantially worse looks overall. He did miss, I think, two catch and shoot plays in the fourth quarter than he had in the rest of the game. And that is the peril of Jordan Clarkson. Yeah, I'm not sure where you go. Maybe you just play Corver more minutes than him. They they feel like they need someone uh, who can play more of a backup guard role. And it's not like George Hill, one of five, 30 minutes, negative 21, and J.R. Smith, one of six, 26 minutes, negative 19, were doing that much better. Though I thought at least Smith, I, I think Ch- Tyloo challenged him at halftime. So he came out really playing a lot better defense in the third quarter. I thought that their defense really, especially in the third, was pretty good. The Cavaliers, when they weren't turning the ball over and giving up fast breaks. But like Cleveland defended well enough to win in this game, for sure. I mean, Boston had lit them up in those first two games. Uh, they just couldn't score again. Um, yeah, I mean, you mentioned the seven-man rotation for Boston. Marcus Smart was great again. He was plus 10, 13 points, three of six from three. He took a couple of bad ones late when he was kind of feeling it, but... You'll take three out of six from three for Marcus Smart any day of the week. He had a couple of tough long twos in the third quarter, or not long twos. One was like a tough floater. The other one was a, a pull-up jumper, which, you know, are shots you live with, but he made him to, to their credit. They count on the scoreboard. What else you got on this one? I thought offensively, this was a pretty rough game for Terry Rozier. He forced a couple of shots. He's just not good at finishing at the rim. It's a weak point in his game. And he did end up with, with six assists and only one turnover, but... I think that the the criticism, the questions about whether he can be, you know, a real starting point guard are founded on that idea that he, he does a lot of positive things. He's a surprisingly great rebounder for his size, capable defender, and while he is being attacked by Cleveland, that is largely a credit to everybody else that Boston plays defensively. But for most teams, and I would say Boston is included among this, the primary job of most teams' point guards is to create quality looks for themselves and and their teammates and I just don't trust Rozier on that all the way especially because Boston was getting a lot of their best looks in transition with players that were not Terry Rozier often running the show like Jalen Brown did a beautiful job yeah Braun did a really nice job pushing there was one play where he just pushed it off a make in the second quarter everyone was back and he just pushed it hard anyway I don't know if the Celtics are intentionally doing this but every time LeBron James misses a shot they get a fast break it seems like I don't and know sometimes when he shoots a layup and makes it. Yeah, yeah, that one by uh, Brown was off that type of situation. The strategic dance was interesting early. You remember how badly the weak links got targeted in game four on both sides? It was surprising to see both teams go away from that a fair amount. Boston, their plan was if Rozier got switched onto LeBron, which they tried to avoid having happen, but it would happen eventually. I mean, I think, and there's something to be said too for, okay, on the first screen, when you're not you're just think we're going to just switch we'll kind of hedge and get back to our man and at least make you rescreen and use up three or four seconds before we give up that switch you know even that that three or four seconds it can be huge and then they would get it to lebron but not really in post-up position they would have to lob it in and then the plan was baines is going to run over and rosier will sprint to the weak side well what they started off lebron had a very specific plan of attacking that he said all right as soon as i catch the ball against rosier and you scram him out and bring Baines over to guard me instead, I'm going to throw the ball to the weak side. Even if there's not an immediate opening, you're going to be in rotation on that weak side. And they got Kevin Love an early three there uh, as Cleveland started off very nicely offensively, and it went downhill from there. Um, Then in the second half, 
LeBron just had like guys on the weak side and J.R. Smith was the guy and they decided I'm not throwing it to J.R. Smith anymore I'm gonna just go on one-on-one against Aaron Baines and he hit a couple of buckets on them and then we didn't really see that strategy as much from Boston anymore that I recall uh but that was that was an interesting strategic dance and then for Boston you know I don't Corver wasn't in as much Love was playing with the traditional center I think you know he spent more time not guarding Horford in this game again uh you know, but they didn't try a lot of like pick and pop with Marcus Morris or any of that stuff to really go at Love and go at Corver. Um, but I think they're getting in transition enough they didn't need to. And then, and they were also just trying to get Jason Tatum the ball on some of those stack sets they like to run where he'll come off a screen into a little Iverson cut and be able to rip it through an attack or, or get a pick and roll. You know, that they ran that probably, you know, I, I want to say maybe like 10 times late third and then in, in a, the fourth quarter which ended up largely being you know a, a rock fight until the Celtics pulled away and were up by 18 or so with uh, four minutes left when I turned the game off. I've maintained a pretty consistent focus on Boston's half-court offense during this series. I misstated it once on Twitter and Bay Show's defense but it's their half-court offense and in this game per cleaning the glass Boston 0.85 points per possession in the half-court but two things. One, they were able to get out and run enough that that was not as big of an issue. They still scored. And they actually did a better job in half-court offense than Cleveland because Cleveland was 0.827. And if they're ahead of Cleveland there and Boston is getting out and running more, they're going to have a pretty damn good shot of winning. Yeah, I mean, Cleveland just doesn't have the energy to run unless it's just a clear transition attack situation because James just, you know, he can't do that with the load that he has to carry. Oh. And, and he definitely looked pretty tired by the end of this one. Did you happen to see Ty Lue's explanation for why Kyle Korver wasn't in very much? No, what is it? It's fun. So Ty Lue said that Semi Ojale was Kyle Korver's matchup and it threw the Cavs for a loop when Ojale wasn't in. That's an interesting admission. And that makes sense, actually, because... I think he just feels like there's no one for Corver to guard. The, all these guys uh, on the Celtics are threats. Now, I don't know why Corver Cor- can't guard Marcus Smart. Uh, maybe they just feel like you can't have him in pick and roll. But if you want to have Marcus Smart go one-on-one against Kyle Corver, be my guest, and you can try to go under uh, on some of those picks. I mean, Smart, he's like hit enough against Cleveland maybe that they're just like afraid of letting him shoot. But at some point, I think you got to just let him do it. And it's worth it to get Kyle Corver on the floor. But yeah, they didn't play Ojale at all. And... uh Brad Stevens was coy about it when he was asked about, like, you know, how come you didn't play Ojale? Ty Lue said that through for a loop or whatever. I'm really surprised he admitted that. That's kind of funny. But, uh, well, and think about the, think about the, like, the trade off for, for Stevens. I mean, I'm sure he didn't know that, but by, by taking Corver off the floor, they have replacements for Ojale. They went to the seven man rotation, all of which are capable players, whereas the, the Cavs have no replacement for Kyle Corver. Yeah. That's a great point. I mean, they just, like, the Cavaliers. Uh, J.R. Smith is just such a bellwether in this series. I mean, he just, like, he'll have game If he could just have a games where he hits, like, three three-pointers, you know, three out of nine, like, that's good enough for them. But just these, like, one out of six games are just so rough. They really are. And Oh, uh, wow. Just I just looked it where up. Where he is at this point. J.R. Smith has not hit a shot in the garden this year, uh, a three-pointer in the garden this series. Oof. Zero for three, zero for four, zero for four. And in those three games collectively... He is three for twenty-two from the field. Yeah, and George Hill hasn't been any better, really. really. Yeah, I mean it's it's, it's awful. But, yeah, Hill did at least get six free throw attempts. He came alive slightly in the second and half. And Hill periodically plays engaged defense, so that's that's better than Smith was in the first half. Smith did play some. Also, we should note that while he Smith was more active defensively, he also fouled Jason Tatum twice. 
So that didn't that didn't help as yeah. much. Though he did draw one offensive foul, which I think they should call more often in the NBA, where the offensive player doesn't really have anything and just kind of pushes off and and to create extra space without much of a purpose, you know, without without you know much tact to it. And so they got Tatum on that, which I supported. Tristan Thompson did absolutely nothing in this game. I think helped by the fact that Baines was in there one point. 0 for 3 from the field. You remember he had a double-double in the last game, and he had you know, solid numbers of offensive rebounds and t- forced team offensive rebounds in those two games in Cleveland. Should we talk about what's going to happen the rest of the series now? I guess. I mean, so Cleveland should be the significant favorite in Game 6 because they have been the better team at home, and they'll hopefully they'll play better defense. Hopefully for them, they'll play better defense. And then Boston, while I think Cleveland is a stronger game seven road team than the average one that only lowers the odds from like i think it's around 80 percent to you know maybe maybe in the 60 to 70 range if that i mean and and cleveland's defense has been inconsistent enough in boston that they're not that much you know they have lebron and maybe lebron can put this team on on his back but yeah boston that means boston to me is has a really good shot in this series yeah you you have to say they're massive favorites at this point i mean and i believe that teams that have won you know that lead 3-2 with a uh, home court advantage are you know like 83 percent win expectancy or something and i i might still give cleveland a little bit more than that but you know there's certainly a possibility that boston could win game six in cleveland as well and you certainly don't want to be stuck in a game seven against lebron i mean certainly i'm sure most people would have given the warriors a very huge chance of winning game seven at home but yeah i mean i don't know if you want to go into that if you're boston even with this incredible home record that they've had it, it can go awry for them certainly you would think at some point here um i'm be very interested to see for boston you know with the every other day nature of this and some guys like horford and tatum they're down to this seven man rotation now if it's not looking good early for them do they kind of throttle back and just give guys a little bit easier minutes and kind of save the juice for game seven you could see them doing that they definitely did that in game three when they were getting blown out and then for Lou you know is he going to try to change up to get a little more offense on the floor now is he going to stick with more of these defense and rebounding lineups I think just you know whenever you when you've got like Horford and Baines together I think you would like to go with Love at center with Baines on the floor you can get a little bit more help you're not as worried about uh, all the shooting on the floor and then you know you can kind of change up if you're going to play Nance as backup center I mean, that's kind of the problem. Nance has been good. They, they kind of need him to soak up minutes, right? Because because your other problem, if you're going to play Love at center, is now you got to play more guards. And between Hill, Smith, Corver is pretty limited defensively. So if he's going to start, you know, you're worried that you're going to get lit up. Jeff Green is you know, not a great option. Clarkson. So Nance is probably just a better player than a lot of those guys I named and so it makes sense to play bigger just so you have you know just better talent on the floor essentially but obviously the offense and the fit may not be as good so I'm not saying it's all cut and dry that but I think you, you got to at least try to get some minutes with love at center and see how that goes in this series and maybe you save it for game seven if everything's going great here but I, I do think you need to try it and see what see what happens at some point here that you know they completely gave up on it after one game and now the tenor of the series has changed with Baines now starting again I don't really have anything else in this game do you have anything well that Larry Nance almost had a really nice dunk on Baines but hit him in the face yeah and missed it anyway 
and, and I do, uh, you know, Joel Embiid had a tweet that like man bun exists just to get dunked on. He also, uh, Bob Vulgaris responded that he also exists to hit corner threes on Joel Embiid. But I'm sorry, like I have nothing but respect for the way that Aaron Baines protects the rim as a very limited defensive center. I mean, if 80% of the centers in the league played with his intensity, I mean, does he have better physical tools than like, you know, Jonas Valanciunas or Nikola Vucevic or like guys like that, but yet he's an effective center and those guys defensively aren't very effective. And I think Baines has shown quicker feet than I gave him credit for. I think he's gotten in a better shape this year, but still just, you know, he's basically doing it on smarts and effort and he's been a solid rim protecting center in this series and this season a guy who I kind of derided earlier in his career. I didn't think he was that type of player. He, he definitely gets dunked on a lot, but he also forces a lot of misses at the rim. So that's that's his job. He's he's getting paid $4 million a year, not for his own vanity, but to actually make basketball plays. And if you get dunked on once every two weeks, so be it. It only counts for two points. Fully agreed. And yeah, I mean, and we, we talked about this a little bit because people were asking like who on the Celtics isn't going to be there next year. I think they would really miss Baines if they have to go to some other replacement. I mean, maybe they can make that guy work too, but Baines has been huge for them. Yeah, and I'm not sure who is going to play Baines more than if they wanted to just bring him back. You know, and maybe you could even say he's earned, you know, a one plus one for next year or a two-year deal at 120% of what they paid him this year. You know, that, that's a possibility. He is in his early 30s so at this point, so he might have to, might end up declining a little bit next year. But we can talk more about that whenever their season ends and their off-season preview. So we're going to talk about the Wizards uh, off-season momentarily. Spoiler alert, they're in the tax. But that actually could lead to some pretty interesting decisions because I, I am nearly certain some kind of money is going to have to get offloaded for them and we'll talk about how that's going to happen and for them to remain competitive uh but i want to talk first about team rubicon a a charity that i recently became involved with that danny has been involved with uh, for quite some time so uh, i'll let you tell people about it especially if you can't support us via our sponsors we would love if you support the podcast with the donation to team rubicon they're doing great work i have been a donor for with team rubicon since 2012 i am very quick to leave something with a charity if i don't feel that they're living up to it so it's it should be a statement that i've stuck with them for this long and team rubicon is an amazing concept that is executed beautifully of taking the unique skills that service members get while they're in the armed services and converting those into helping out in natural disasters and they connect with first responders and try to come up with these solutions and any place in the world, sadly enough, can be affected by a natural disaster, and Team Rubicon has done a wonderful job of being there. It's not a partisan issue. It, it's not anything about that. It's just helping people. And so if Hurricane Maria that devastated Puerto Rico, Superstorm Sandy, New York, I mean, all this, all, Harvey, everything else that went on in Texas and in the South this past year, they've been involved in all that. And I've been thrilled to, to be involved with them because it's 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 a great purpose but it's also an incredibly well-run organization and as we're about to talk about the washington wizards the importance of a well-run organization is not lost on the two of us <laughs> yeah absolutely 80 percent of your money goes directly to operations on the ground which is a, a great number for a charity obviously every charity has to have some sort of an administrative aspect but 80 percent of your money going directly to operations on the ground that's pretty impressive they have over 240 disaster response operations around the world over 75,000 volunteer members, and they deployed over $7.2 million in volunteer labor in 2017. So a great place to 
donate if you're looking to do that team rubicon usa.org slash cap space is the url that's team rubicon usa.org slash cap space the wizards don't have any cap space but i hope that you have enough cap space in your wallet to donate to team rubicon usa.org slash cap space or text cap space to 87872 the washington wizards their off season an interesting one based on some of the comments by john wall saying that he wants to get more athleticism in the front court, more of a, a modern lineup around him, but they have no flexibility. None whatsoever. So I have the Wizards as $5.8 million over the tax, even before re-signing any of their free agents, though that does include minimum holds for, you know, to get to the, to get to the minimum. And, you know, that's right around the, the, the maximum threshold that I would expect Ted Leonsis to pay. So they could shed money in a couple different ways most likely by using their draft pick because they do not want to stretch and we'll talk about why in a couple of minutes but that is hard because they they're that means you're really working with at the absolute most the taxpayer mid-level exception hard to get athleticism there but they also would probably want to retain mike scott who had a really nice year for them yeah i mean though they won't be in any better position than any other team to do that they definitely need something at backup forward there are uh, there are guys like that around to be sure backup power forward but really, I mean, you know, you talked about, oh, they'd be okay being $5 million in the tax. Well, when does the tax end for these guys? I mean, maybe they're going to play two more years of tax. I mean, they've still got, with John Wall's extension kicking in at $37.8 million in 2019, they're paying Porter 27, Beal 27, Wall 37, and then they still got Jan Mahimi on the books uh, at 15.4. You also, if you want to bring back Sadoransky or Kelly Oubre, that year you're, you're gonna have to pay something so they're basically it'd be so difficult to avoid the tax with their present commitments even in 2019 so you said that they don't want to stretch let's talk about that because i think a lot of people are assuming that Jan mahimi is going to get stretched this offseason so the reason why it gets dicey is because the wizards tax bills moving forward are more onerous than the one that they might be dealing with this year and the reason you stretch a guy is to is to get that out there if Mihimi's a little bit different than stretching Jason Smith or or Jordy Meeks, who still has not yet picked up his player option, but we yeah, expect him to. He is going to, although they will get million. some savings there tax-wise due to the suspension that Meeks has. Yeah. Due to the suspension, yep. And they have, so so basically with those four, with Porter Beal, Wald, Mahimi, they're actually almost at the projected $108 million cap for nineteen twenty with four dudes. And they have players they want to bring back if they want to be competitive, get into all that. So they could theoretically, because Mihimi has two years left, they could stretch his remaining $31 million over five years rather than over three. And so that would kick into some of the years that their, their books will get a little bit more manageable. But that's a lot of dead money. I mean, do you think about that? And remember, once you put commit to stretching somebody, there is no way to change that. You can't mitigate you can't adjust it's just money that is on your books and it is a big commitment for grunfeld for ted Leonsis. it's just i i think that's going to be a big a big issue for them and you know maybe they could try to finagle it you know get, give up an asset to make it a smaller amount of money but it's going to be hard to manage yeah i think it would surprise me they could try to trade behind me but with 31 million dollars still owed to him over the next two years probably even an unprotected first round pick is not enough to get that done i mean mahimi can still play just a little bit but you know he's a dime a dozen backup center and he's not versatile enough if the other team goes small to really be on the floors you know so he's like a 10 minute a game guy at this point in his career 
they've also got Marcin Gortat, who's got one year left uh, on his contract at, at 13.5 million. Another guy I don't think is particularly tradable. Maybe there's some team that wants a center, and just because he's only one year, they might be willing to take him on. But, you know, to take him on, like the teams that just have 13 million in space to just blow, those teams are, are not teams that want to just sign a 30 or, or have a 32, 33 year old center, whatever he is. Uh, in the last year of his deal they're not even in theory if Gortat helps you which I don't know how much he does at this point they're not interested so maybe maybe Gortat maybe Mahimi you know you could if you throw in draft picks with either of those guys and then you can get back someone who can play you know maybe that's because these teams that need to lose the salary a lot of these are you know similar to the Pels Miritich trade last year where all right we're going to give up a first rounder you take our bad salary but you also give us back someone who can play at least just a little bit uh or at least a little bit more than Gortada or Mahimi and they feel like hey you know what we can just find some a starting center in out of the parts bin in free agency the other option there would be to trade Gortat for a clearly inferior player who makes less money and you know give them a little bit more wiggle room the problem there is that Gortat talented as as he is plays the position of the least surplus value and so there aren't that many teams that are just saying hey like i have a 10 million dollar like i was thinking about terrence ross for this but and the, the magic are an instructive example you know maybe they would be interested in dumping something for for Gortat. i think he's a better option for me than than vooch is but that's not going to be how they use their excess cap space to get another center so you you run into that problem and there just are not that many teams that are really hurting for big men they're hurting for wings and that's what the wizards could use as well i mean they have porter they have kelly Oubre, but neither of these guys especially when you consider who their competition is in the east now boston awesome wings tatum jalen brown gordon hayward lebron who knows whether he'll still in the east or not philly ben simmons who guards ben simmons on this team so you're really that's who a lot of your competition is going forward i mean they can't even guard demar Derozan, you know not to mention some of these other guys so and i think porter you know i think they felt like we made it to the second round last year we had to bring him back we didn't have a choice potentially trying to move him is the other thing that you could see them doing because it's just as you mentioned their salary structure just doesn't work with Otto Porter making 27 million and, and the amount that John Wall is going to be making over the next few years starting in, in 2019 and they're just not getting enough production from Porter so maybe if they could get a little bit more depth from him there might be a team you know maybe Denver is a, is one of these teams that would be willing to take Porter give up some some younger assets maybe someone who could help them a little bit this year maybe there are teams that just don't get it that Otto Porter is not that good defensively or maybe you know a team like Sacramento where we just we have such an enormous hole at the three that anybody who can be a passable defensive player and we don't care about playoff matchups because we're not going to get in there anyway but the other problem with Porter is he cannot be traded until a year after that offer sheet was matched so it's like around you know July 12th or something and he has a 15 percent trade bonus and he has a player option on the end of that contract as well so trading him a little bit more difficult but there's enough bad salary out there maybe that there's a team that'd be willing to do that and that they could get a few more pieces but i i i don't know i mean is is there any team out there you would see trading for porter 
I don't see a particularly good suitor. Maybe they could do something where they, the Wizards take back some money just to get the the numbers a little bit closer. I don't think there's anybody that takes them on just full, you know, like that idea. I also think they're going to consider Bradley Beal trades just because it'll be more palatable. He has three years and eighty one million left on the on his on his contract so it's actually very similar to Porter but Beal is a more palatable guy he's that he's had a better career you can fit him in fit him in a lot of places hey maybe and, maybe Brooklyn would take him would would take out Porter oh I, I nearly brought I, I mean up. they, they yeah. did the same thing with Alan Crabb they obviously really liked although maybe they learned their lesson with Crabb they obviously really liked Porter so after a year has gone by they can make that trade uh and, and you know maybe getting back like Rondé Hollis Jefferson and you know Jeremy Lin or Jeremy Lin you know, to, to get a backup guard and you know, maybe Damari Carroll as well so I don't think they would be that much worse of a team this year and if Brooklyn is like hey we really want that salary it's possible well there could even be a way to expand it at adding putting in it would be a lot more money to throw in with Mozgov but they could throw in like Jason Smith and some of these other pieces to just kind of get the, to get the money closer yeah. maybe and and Beal, you know, I think there's a, a larger market for him because he's just been a better player overall. I mean, he had, he had a really nice year. But again, it's, it's going to be the who, why, why do they want this guy as opposed to all the other ones on the market? The benefit could be that if if Portland's still holding firm on CJ McCollum, that if a team is desperate for a two, he might be the best guy available. So they should they should certainly listen. But I have no idea what the offers are going to be. My prediction is they will stretch Mahimi. I, I think they'll do that and. Because, I mean, you, the third year in a row of the tax of this team in 2019, I mean, at least stretching him might get you a little bit of breathing room. Although, you, I mean, you mentioned it where you're almost at 100 million. I mean, if they stretch Mahimi, they're still pretty much at like, you know, what, like 95 million just in 2019 alone. And, you know, if if they're lucky, the cap will go up to 108. I still haven't heard a good reason why it's going to jump so much next year. And then... Even then, I mean, if you want to just fill out a roster with three guys on your roster, I mean, it's so hard to do that. Even if you just paid everyone the minimum, you're pretty close to the tax just right there. Well, I will note that that's 108 is the cap, not the tax. So they would have about 30 million to work with. But if you but if you throw in Ubre getting like 10, then. Oh, yeah. No, no. no, I'm I'm talking about even if you're at like 95 million and for three guys and, and the tax is like 120. I mean, it's pretty pretty damn hard that's true because because although even just the minimum spots yeah. that, that yeah, takes like, up I mean, a lot of money you can't really sign anybody so for like holes. less than you know especially if you're that much of a vet for less than you know like two million per slot i mean that would be tough uh yeah i don't know how you how you i mean they they would have to come up with 13 roster slots and they would have you know like 30 million dollars to do that with. that's pretty damn hard to fit that kind of money in. it's like a football team like the you know you hear those stories of like the, the i remember when i was a kid of like the washington redskins or the dallas cowboys have like 60 million in dead money on their books it would basically be like that but for an nba yeah team. so that this is why i'm of the belief and john wall maybe he could get traded too uh but it's just it's i i think he's getting pretty close to a noah trade clause <laughs> yeah I mean, look at, look at, I, I'm just going to, just because I think this yeah. is worth doing, I'm going to say his money per season, because this is jaw-dropping for, for John Wall. So, upcoming season, 18-19, million. That sounds good. It is. It's totally fine. 2019-20, 37.8 million. And if the cap, and that's with the cap spike, so I guess it could get a little bit lower, because that, you know, it depends on where things are then. 2020-21, 40.8 21-22, 40.8 23.8 million. And 22 23 46 
$1.8 million on a player option that might even need a new register of the Nate Duncan player <laughs> option voice we, when we, we get we to that point. To, like, bring in some sort of just, like, soprano opera singer or something to do that one. <laughs> yeah, d- d- don't, uh, don't give someone a designated veteran extension, especially not two years before they can become a free agent unless they are an absolute dead bang like top 10 player in the nba maybe even top you gotta be top five player in the nba and pretty young um yeah that is rough well and that's the other big problem with wall is that they're not getting so much in the present value that it's it's just fine like for i think that was the argument for russell westbrook was like hey russell westbrook you know he's huge for this team we're just coming off an mvp john wall we both didn't think he deserved to make the all-star game this past year and granted, they signed the extension before he didn't. Yeah. He shouldn't. He's got the plenty, of, game, plenty of injury issues as well, which is part of why. Oh my it, god, it's scary going forward. It's just not a guy whose game you think is going to age particularly well with, with his shooting issues. Well, I mean, what do their team needs? They need a backup power forward. I mean, at least they have a relatively full roster, at least for this year. They obviously could always use more on the wing. They've got Sadoransky still under contract. If Scott Brooks would just. Pay, play the guy they're good at backup point guard he can give you some minutes on the wing as well especially during the regular season so i mean I, I think on the backup power forward market you know there are a few guys with the minimum we'll see what mike scott gets you know maybe they bring him back maybe they could just break into their taxpayer mid-level just a little bit and pay him you know like 2.5 million a year or something like that you could see maybe trevor booker making a return uh, although i think they really need like a shooter uh, if Darrell Arthur gets stretched, that might be someone they could look at as a little bit of a reclamation project. He's only 30. He's had some weird illnesses. Kevon Looney might be an interesting one for this team. Um, but you think if with the money they could offer, he'd probably rather just go back to the Warriors. Right. Well, I would like to see them get just a on the perimeter a high motor guy who just runs with john wall whenever he's on the floor the analog that i was thinking of was young Corey brewer where basically he tried on defense and then just leaked out having somebody who can provide that energy in their rotation would be yeah gr3 could be a, a, a thought there also maybe james ennis if he can come cheap might be someone that i would try to target in on pretty immediately there mike beasley actually would be someone who could probably help this team a dc native that'd be fun and I don't know if they're going to have the scratch for like a Jeremy Grant or even a, an Anthony Tolliver or an Ursan Eliasova. I'm guessing probably not. Well, and the opportunity there, assuming Markeith Morris and, you know, Kelly Oubre are still a part of the rotation, their opportunity is not particularly better than some of the other ones guys like Tolliver and Ersan Eliasova will have on the table. Maybe Davis Bertans, if, you know, he's a restricted free agent, so I'm not sure about that. But maybe if San Antonio just decides, hey, you know, we'll let this guy go could be someone that that they could look at too not a very inspiring list however yeah and it's weird there aren't even that many real good like hustle guys like with that that niche that i talked about before this isn't really a good free agent class for it's just it's just an older group overall yeah i mean that's generally the nature of free agency to be sure well and wings are so value wings are so valuable that if there's even a chance that a guy's going to be any good teams are just keeping right like david nuapa you imagine is going to be as a restricted free agent is going to be back in chicago for example i mean he he's another guy who i think would, would be perfect for the that type of role that you were talking about they do have ty lawson that they could potentially resign he made a hearty eight thousand dollars this year signing on basically the last day of the season so and he actually played well for them in the playoffs I, I would try to bring him back if i could but they have bigger needs than backup point guard at this point in time i think so i don't know it's, it's just it's so hard to think i mean unless wall and beal and porter can just get way better it's really just difficult for me to think of what their 
possibilities are. I mean, I might want to try like a Noah Vonley to just play as a center every once in a while to get more of a switching element going. These guys are not going to change your destiny, though. And I think the Wizards, they felt like, hey, we could be right there. Uh, a certain analyst even picked them to make the East Finals this year. But with their injury problems, I think it really seems like Beal, to me, is probably the most likely of the big three that could potentially take another step. He had a much better year last year. But, you know, Wallet seems like he's already kind of on the downside. He'll, he'll probably be a little better next year because he just won't be injured the whole year. Or at least he won't have to have a surgery during the year. At least we don't, we hope not. And Porter, I'm just not really sure how he gets like that much better either. But it's, uh, yeah, I mean, this looks like they're pretty much locked in for, you know, 43 and a half wins to 47 and a half wins for the next uh, three years or so. And uh, paying the luxury tax for that can certainly get fatiguing for an owner. Uh, but good thing they extended Ernie Grunfeld again, though. That the guy who uh locked in this roster yeah i was trying to think of uh there are certainly examples in other sports of somebody who i i argued for ernie grunfeld to get fired like when i started with real gm maybe even before that and he's still there it's amazing well on that sobering note <laughs> we could probably wrap up with well, this no, well let's mention briefly let's mention briefly that i want to say that that thomas adranski is actually available for uh, for an extension now that it's, you know the two-year anniversary of a three-year contract i don't think they're going to make that happen but it'd be worthwhile to talk with him because just getting a little bit of cost certainty the risk mitigation from sadoransky would be yeah nice. to me if i'm thomas sadoransky I'm not interested in re-signing here because I've just been jacked around so much on playing time, especially playing behind players that I was clearly superior to, at least in, in my opinion. And probably he'll does. also have a high qualifying offer, yeah, so he can play chicken with them a little bit better than yeah. Most and then guys Kelly do. Oubre also extension eligible. Another one I think, unless he just the way it kind of seems, I'm sure he sees himself as a future starter. I'm not sure they see them see him that way. I wouldn't want to be paying out an eight-figure-per-year extension to him yet. He hasn't shown me enough offensively. He's got a lot of potential, but I'm not sure that he is good enough as a wing defender either. You know, he's a little bit slight, same problem that Otto Porter has. So unless he's a guy who I feel like can really be a lockdown individual defender on the wing with where his offense is at right now, I'm not interested in paying him eight figures, and I'm sure it's exceedingly unlikely that he would take less than that maybe if we see that like this year's restricted free agents just get totally hosed that maybe that could have a, a chilling effect on the market and they might be able to get him for something I mean, what is the most that you would pay him in an extension as i write this down i guess we'll have dan be the wizards probably in the uh mock rookie extension negotiations i would i mean so. it's got dan <sighs> grun feldman i mean there's no way <laughs> oh that's right there's no way we the, can't have him yeah. still on still on the short list of my best ad libs though the all-time best of that will be the megadeth lineup <laughs> but uh I, I would be i'd be kind of in the like eight to eleven yeah. million dollar range but probably on the short end of that just because of the risk mitigation yeah, we just don't see extensions get done for that amount. i think more extensions should get nope. done for that those type of amounts and i think more will but i don't think yeah. this one no will. It and, and uber doesn't seem like the type of guy who's going to be like you know, I think he, he seems like the type of guy who's got an ego and, and sees big things for himself. I don't see him being like, yeah, you know, I'll take a salary that's like commensurate with a, a good bench player. I don't see him doing that. All right, that'll do it for the Washington Wizards then. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. 